in boot camp. <laughs> God, I've been through boot camp once, David. That that's it for me. <laughs> now I'm ready to fight. <laughs> okay, any any prayers tonight? It's good to see you all. Hi, Bob. Hi, Karen. Maria. Uh, Maria. Say. Uh, Cheryl's husband, Paul, he also attended the class uh, yeah. until he yeah. started to have uh, problems. He's, uh, about three weeks ago, he had a, a triple bypass surgery. Oh, right, right. And ever since then, he is just fighting for his life. Yeah, yeah. One problem after another. So please keep him Paul. in your prayers. We'll do... We'll do... Um, Thank you, Kay, for that. Um, any other any other prayers? Jonathan. Bob and Karen, it's good to see you. Marilyn, Maria, Cecilia, it would be nice to see your face if if you're inclined. Um, <laughs> there, there. I I always enjoy that smile of yours. Um, any other prayers before we start? I'm just going to continue, if you don't mind, just continue praying for my mother-in-law. Will do. Yes, will do. Us, um, because, you know, the virus is so bad here in El Paso, just that we'll, we can all just remain safe. Connie, what's your mom's name again? I'm sorry. Mother-in-law. Mother. Uh, Jackie. Jackie, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. Um, Let's, let's, let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you this day, for your presence with us. It's Thanksgiving week. Um, we're coming out of an election that has left a lot of people um, very troubled. Um, um, and warning signs, you know, governors telling us to wear, using political authority to tell us to wear masks in our home. I mean, there are some disturbing signs. Um, the virus is spreading. We're struggling to keep it down away. Um, there's threats politically around us. Um, a lot going on in our world, and we're heading towards Christmas. Um, and a celebration of your birth, you're coming into the world, so a lot is going on. People are caring a lot. Um, so help us in this season. I, the Hore, Auden's poem, will close on a positive note. I'm glad that we can look forward to that together, but in this Thanksgiving week, um, help us, whatever's going on, to remember that this is a week of gratitude. That we gather together to give thanks to that small group of pilgrims who risk their lives for you and for each other so that they could worship you freely. Um, not to be told, so England had persecuted Presbyterians, Puritans, Catholics. Um, people had to flee um, to avoid having a government tell them what to do, um, how to worship. It was a great gift to us as American, and it set our country apart from other countries, that we had a freedom here. There's lots of us that feel those freedoms are being threatened right now. 
um, help us as a country to hold on to our roots, um, stop trashing statues and looking at things in the past as if they're bad because they weren't perfect. We will never be perfect. If perfection, if we wait on a perfection all the time, we'd never put up a statue. Um, so in this time of trouble, help us um, to hold on to that historic occasion that they risked an ocean and a new land and came and settled our country. And all of our freedoms have come from it. Um, the Jews had to risk a desert um, to learn how to get past the tyranny in Egypt. You know, having a pharaoh tell them what to do. Freedom carries a burden, a heavy responsibility. So in this week, help us to bear our burdens, our responsibilities gladly. Be thankful, um, even when they involve sufferings. Um, help us to carry in our hearts all week, particularly on Thursday, a gratitude for all that we have. We ask a blessing on Paul in his recovery. Um, watch over that man. Um, help the people who love him. I'm thinking about David and Kay right now. Kay sounds worried. Um, whatever goes on with him, um, help everybody who loves him knows that finally he's in good hands. Um, that those hands are sure than any doctors. You know, whatever happens. Um, so be with him in his recovery, help him where help is possible, um, let this occasion, uh, the struggles, this ordeal that he's facing, be an occasion for everybody who cares about him to grow in their faith. And that's what we hope for all of us when those we love are facing problems. Be with Connie's mom, or mother-in-law, Jackie. Um, Protect her, keep her well, help her to recover still, keep her health. And I ask a special blessing on Connie and her husband while they're there. Um, to, to um, keep them safe from this virus. I ask that prayer for all of us, actually, help all of us to keep, this, keep that virus off. Um, help none of us be cavalier to take things for granted to trust in you, um, um, help keep us healthy. Um, ask a prayer for our family. Jonathan is going in for um, a minor surgery tomorrow. I'll be with him. Ask a special prayer for Thomas and Christopher um, that their hearts grow ever closer to you, particularly with burdens. Um, and I ask a special prayer. You all, I don't know that you knew. I can't, I can't recall if we brought it up. You know that Suzanne had a fall a couple weeks ago and she fractured her hand. Um, um, and <laughs> as if that weren't enough, she ran into a tree today and, and came home absolutely shaken, just shaken. So let your peace, your healing be with Suzanne. Um, help her heal, help her heart to quiet, let it be so for me as well. Um, we are grateful for our lives. Um, we have to be here, even to be irritated about our world, so 
while we're here, help us to be grateful. We offer these prayers in your name, in you, our Lord Christ. Amen. Um, if any of you don't recognize that picture in the middle upper screen, that was Connie with a mask on. I thought I had the video off. <laughs> Are are you are you wearing that mask because you're worried about us? No 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 about my mother-in-law. <laughs> um, I'm here, Jane. I still see that piece of paper. What's that? I still see the piece of paper. Yes, five Don four. Why did Dante choose Virgil and Homer? Six Dante. I don't. Is that what I sent you guys? I don't know. Yeah, must must be the notes. It's it's showing on the it's screen on the instead of really don't picture a face. Really, it's what's going? This that summary, yeah, that. Now? Yes, yeah, still. still. You don't see my face down at the bottom of the screen? But no. no, nowhere. Wow. We see you, but we also see on a bigger screen. The outline. That's what I see. How to get rid of this? I don't even know what to do. Um, does that take That's it away? Good. There you go. Yes. There you go. Okay. Good. No. Sorry. Yeah. God. Good. I'm still learning. Um, <laughs> take take out the odd poem and let's let's finish the Hore Canonica. It's an interesting end. Um, next week when we start. Um, I'm going to go back to shorter poems, and I think what I'm going to do is, I, I think I've warned you all or let you all know that because we've been on a long poem for a long time, and you know our custom has been to read short lyrics, not, you know, two or three stanzas. I'm going to go back and we're going to do The Wind Hover and uh, um, Supernatural Love. They're favorites, they're short. Um, and I, th I think when we pick up again, I'm going to read from the gospel. I'll read some gospel passages and some, some songs just to get us back to doing short things again. So um, I'm only saying this because I'm aware that we have been on this poem for a long... You guys are pretty tough um, to have stayed with us. I'm sorry that Melody's not here because I know she loves this poem and um, she and her husband are away for Thanksgiving. They were away last week, and I think they'll be gone next week. But anyway, let's finish. Let's finish the Hore Canonica, um, the canonical hours. The poem ends with a section called Lauds. It's, we've gone through the day from um, prime, terse, nones, vespers, compline, and now Lauds. The word Laud means praise. So. Um, in the canonical hours, this was the time taken in the early morning, very early morning at um, dawn, sunrise, when the monks would gather to praise the coming day. So just if I can very briefly pull the poem together for a second, you remember that it begins in prime with the narrow waking up out of sleep um, and in a sense... Um, beginning the day with a kind of innocence as if he were back in Eden, even though he's carrying these nightmare images from his unconscious, these dreams. But he begins the day in innocence and people get going on the day. The judge is going to set off, the hangman's going to set off, the poet is going to set off. Everybody's setting off to do what they're doing, but 
um, something's going to happen in this day and very few people are aware of it or care anything about it. They just want to get through the day, another day, so that when midnight comes, they can say, it was a good day. The irony through all of it is, is that at the center of all these activities is this scapegoat, this criminal who's going to be executed. The judge will have all these, this is so important, a judge goes off to work and he has all these high-minded ideas about executing some criminal, some prisoner. The hangman's going to pull the court on him. Um, but what none of them is aware of is this is Good Friday, and in some sense, prisoners all share in Christ's execution. And we're, it's, it seems to me it's really hard to think about what's going on without being reminded that when, on the day and the hour, the minute when Christ was crucified, there were crowds everywhere around. And all of them looked at this guy as if he were nothing more than a criminal. You know, deserving what he got. The judge who pronounced the sentence was probably full of himself and thinking he was doing the right thing. But that was true for Pilate, it was true for Herod. It's going to be true for judges today. They're going to make these high pronouncements and... But people won't be aware that there's a deeper significance to what's going on, that this guy um, was in fact God, and that the impossible had happened. That in an immortal God, somebody who couldn't be killed, allowed himself to be killed. So we went through the day through Vespers to the actual moment of death, and then afterwards when the poet knows that something's happened, but he does everything he can to deny it. Um, it, it. It's there, it registers, but it's as if he doesn't want to admit it to himself, so he goes on. And then we, we got to Compline, Compline, and um, it, you remember the last stanza ends with the poet asking, can poets be saved? Um, what can we do? How do we remember? Um, remember, he, when he, the, in the Compline begins with um, that statement, um, now is desire and the thing desired cease to require attention, the body goes back to itself. But finally, this moment should come, the instant of recollection when the whole thing makes sense. It comes, but all I recall are doors banging, two housewives scolding, an old man gobbling, a child's wild look of envy, actions, words that could fit any tale, and I fail to see either plot or meaning. I cannot remember a thing between noon and three. He's blocked it out. It's like a trauma, or moderns would call it repression. So this thing has happened. It's present in him, but it's as if he can't allow it to fully register because for any of us to face the crucifixion is terrifying. <clears throat> so finally, with all these efforts to try to remember what happened between noon and three, he comes to the end and says, can poets be saved? It's not easy to believe in a noble justice or pray in the name of a love whose name once forgotten. Um, and all poor SOBs who never do anything properly spare us in the youngest day when all are shaken awake, facts are facts, and I shall know exactly what happened today between noon and three, that we too may come to the picnic with nothing to hide, 
join the dance as it moves in perichoresis, turns about the abiding tree. So he looks forward to that moment when all of us will gather at this picnic, the banquet, the heavenly banquet. It's the, it's the feast that we share in each weekend or each day in Mass when we receive the Eucharist. And all of us will be indwelling. Perichoresis is the word for the indwelling of the Trinity. That we will not any be, we'll, we'll no longer be, even in marriages, we'll no longer just be two separate individuals. We will be in, indwelling one with another. We will still be distinct selves, Robert and Suzanne, Bob and Karen, and whoever it is, um, Melody and Odysseus. <laughs> I hope she will hear that one day. Um, indwelling, each one with the other and all the pains and risks that it took to do that, because none of us um, can love without entering into the interior of another, and that's always a risk. Um, so he brings that to an end, and now he's going to close the poem with lauds. It's the morning prayer of praise. So let me read it, and then I just got a couple of questions to end it, and we'll finish this poem. Lauds from Ladere to praise. Among the leaves the small birds sing, the crow of the cock commands awakening in solitude for company. Bright shines the sun on creatures mortal, men of their neighbors become sensible in solitude for company. The crow of the cock commands awaking, already the mass bell goes dong ding in solitude for company. Men of their neighbors become sensible. God bless the realm, God bless the people, in solitude for company. Already the mass bell goes dong ding, the dripping mill wheel is again turning, solitude for company. God bless the realm, God bless the people, God bless the green world, temporal, in solitude for company. The dripping mill wheel is again turning, among the leaves the small birds sing, in solitude for company. Okay, what's he doing? What's he saying? And why is he ending the poem this way? Because you know from our talks about it that the poem is a very razor-edged piece of irony. Um, all, all these things are going on, but the irony is that there's something underneath them all that very few people want to take notice of. So the ironies don't stop, but here he ends the poem um, with the morning, the dawn coming, the sun rising, and things of nature coming alive again. So what's he doing? What's your thoughts about the ending? What does this lauds say? <clears throat> and are you aware of the rhyme schemes and the way they carry forward, the way they repeat themselves? And if you are, why is he doing that? All right, David and Kay, don't you disappear when I start asking hard questions about poetry. We, we're here. We are still here. Waiting for your answer. <laughs> I'm waiting for yours. <laughs> Connie, where did you go? Come back. Maria, same with you. you What's, 
What's going I'm on? Having, I'm having dinner. Oh, sorry. Sorry. You, no, it's okay. You it's enjoy okay. your dinner. Thank you. What's going on here, you guys? Karen, what do you make of this? I think the rhyme scheme is he's pointing out how cyclical, cyclical our lives are. Explain that, Kat, because I'm not sure that's clear to everybody. What Can you flesh that out make it clear? Well, we've got, I mean, his rhyme schemes are cyclical. He's got kind of the same sound rhyming and then the same sound and then back to those so ones again. But, um, you know, our days are cyclical, our, our years are cyclical, and here's the irony. We've had this great thing that happened. This, you know, momentous thing that happened with the crucifixion of Christ and what it did for us. And the irony is that too many people go back to their usual cycle. Mm -hmm. when we hope not to. Anybody but if we still will be in a cycle, and, and the church actually is cyclical, so, you know, I don't know. That's my cyclical theme. <laughs> Mary Jane, do you have a response? Well, not about the the poet poetry, but I'm thinking the reason he ended it with the morning is because it's the resurrection. After we've gone through the crucifixion, now it's morning and the sun is rising. Oh literally. yeah, 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 yeah. No. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm. Yes. Good for you. Good for you. Yeah. Well, that should be Saturday. Hmm. That should be Saturday. Yeah, Doc said the next morning should be Saturday after. I'm not sure that. I'm not sure that we're meant to be too literal here. It's the next day. I th I think what's happening, if I can put it this way, is Good Friday is past. I mean, it's it's another day. What he calls our attention to here, even if it's Saturday or Sunday or any other day following, um, that there's this goodness in the world that can't be stopped. The sun's going to come up. The birds are going to sing. You know, the, the, um, the church is going to ring its bells. The mass is going to take place. So, remember in the opening prime, it was the beginning of the day. The poem began in the beginning of the day. But it begins from the perspective of a, of a man in solitude. Notice the refrain here, in solitude for company. He's alone. He's in his own mind. He's looking at a world, but he's really by himself entering. It's like Adam entering the fall. And we've observed the world through his eyes. And now at the end, we come back to the, a new day. Except the focus is not on this man and his consciousness of the world. It's objectively about the goodness of the world itself. Um, among the leaves, the small birds sing. The crow cocks. He crows, you know, brings the morning in. The mass bell is already ringing. Um, the, the mill wheel is turning again. Life is coming back. So even in the midst of um, the scapegoating pattern that, that exists in society, in the city, there is this goodness in nature, constantly there. Um, it's irresistible. 
the interesting, just a couple of interesting notes about the poem. All the rhymes are what what people in the literary field would call slant rhymes or off rhymes. Sing, awakening, mortal, sensible, awakening, ding, sensible, people, ding, turning, people, temporal, turning, sing. They're just off, slightly off, but they're there. They're rhymes. So even if they're not bold, what, what in the, the field people called masculine rhymes, bold rhymes, they're, they're quiet, they're there. So as if, as if underneath what's going on in the world, there is this imperceptible harmony. Things rhyme. They pull together. So even if it's not obvious and bold, it's there. Um, so that's one of the things to notice about the rhyme scheme. The other is, um, <clears throat> did you all notice that the, the so the stanzas are um, couplets, two line, two line stanzas. The second line of every stanza gets carried over and becomes the first line of a stan two stanzas later. Is everybody following me? So look at the poem in the first stanza. The crow of the cock commands awakening. Third stanza, the crow of the cock commands awakening. Okay? So the second, the, the concluding line of the second stanza, men of their neighbors become sensible. Go two stanzas down, it's the first line. So he keeps taking a line and goes one stanza beyond and picks it up again. So some, some harmony that was there gets carried forward. It's barely perceptible, but it's there. It's as if he's saying, underneath nature, with all this beauty, there is this hidden harmony, this music. Do we see it? You know, when, when, when the sun comes out and, and the monks are meeting for prayers, they're, they're praying a thanksgiving. Lauds means to praise, to say, good for you, God. Thank you for all your goodness. So, um, and by the way, if you go back to, uh, I think it was in Vespers on page, our page 10, towards the bottom of page 10 in Vespers, remember when it's talking about the two poles, the antitypes, the Edenic and the Utopian antitypes? On page 10, he's got these lines towards the bottom. When reason for his contempt is that I have only to close my eyes, cross the iron footbridge to the towpath, take the barge, and there I stand in Eden again. Back by the crumb horns, dopians, sordooms of jolly miners, those are all wind instruments, you know, of the late Middle Ages, these wind instruments, pipe sort of instruments. And a Bob Major from the Cathedral Romanesque of St. Sophie. I'm, I'm not sure if that's in Russia or Germany, I'm not sure, but, but a Bob Major is referring to, you know, if you go into a cathedral, I'm sure all of you, I'm sure, I, or most of you have had this experience, you know you'll hear the ringing of the bells, and if you've heard the ringing of the bells, you know they pass from one tone to another, that there will be a, one pitch for a certain bell and it'll be followed by another ringing of bells that will be at another pitch and then a third at another pitch. So the bells keep ringing but a different pitch and all together they form a harmony. So he's talking about the, the Bob Major and then in his 
rhyming, he takes the second line of each stanza and carries it forward so that it begins a new rhyme with another stanza. So there are end rhymes at the end of each couplet, but there are these, there's this repetition of lines that get carried forward and um, serve to introduce a new rhyme. So it, it's not so much cyclical as, um, I don't know how to describe it. It's like carrying forward a harmony. It's, it's veiled. It's moving forward. Things are changing, but always in harmony. It never, no matter what the change is, the harmony is always there. God's nature is good. No matter what happens in the city, God's nature is good. You remember, that was the, that was the great theme of Boethius. Goodness is diffusive. It's a sweet diffusim bonum. Goodness is diffusim, diffusive. It's, it's constantly at work. It's always there. No matter what men do, it's always there. And then it's got the refrain ending each stanza, in solitude for company, in solitude for company, solitude for company. What's the meaning of that? Every stanza ends with that refrain. It couldn't be more emphatic. It ends each one of the stanzas. Why is he, what's, what's the meaning of that? What's he saying? You guys didn't know it, but this is going to be a course in lyric poetry, did you, when we started? It's beautiful. It's really, it's an amazing poem. Why is he doing that in Solitude for Company? Among the leaves the small birds sing. The crow of the cock commands awakening. The cock is calling everybody to wake. In solitude for company. Bright shines the sun on creatures mortal. Men of their neighbors become sensible. In solitude for company. What's he doing? What's he saying? And what's he doing? God, can you put your... Yeah. Yeah. I'm having trouble with particular line. I mean, I know, for example, that the monks live in solitude, that they very much... Uh, <gasps> They very much are contemplative, but I I haven't really figured out that one. Boy, it seems to me you have. You're partly saying it. <laughs> Connie, do you have a thought? Well, I was just thinking the company of Jesus, uh, because they are in solitude and they pray so much. You know, they're praying, so that company would be our Lord and Savior. Yeah, I think I think, too, it's so when the bird awakes, you know, the bird sings. He's singing alone, but for company. I mean, all of nature is communal. Even if you isolate a tree, I mean, that's one of the problems of the modern mind. Even if you isolate a tree, that tree, that tree could not exist on its own. He could not exist without the sun. He could not exist without the soil. Everything about nature is communal. It, it's in company with each other. Everything about nature speaks community. And I think that's true for individuals. I mean, all of us long to be with others. So, not even to go to Christ yet. I mean, the longing for Him, it's that we long for each other. 
You know, amongst live in communal life. Huh? Amongst live in a communal life. Could you all hear Doc? Can you say it louder, Doc? The monks live in the monastery in a communal life. They may be silent a lot. They may work on their own, but it's still a communal life. Everything in us longs for community. I can't say that strongly enough. I'm, I want to leave Christ out of it for a minute. I, I know that's the Trinity is not good. Trinity. Yeah, that's right. Because I, I just think we've lost it in our world, particularly with a fundamentalist behind us. But if we were made, I've said this, you guys probably get tired of hearing me say this, but if we were made in God's image, we're Trinitarian by nature because God himself is Trinitarian. The Father didn't live alone. When the Father, when the Father thought about himself, that conception of himself is his Son. Co-eternal. Not before, not after, one with him. The love between the two, Holy Spirit. They coexist as one, indwelling. Everything about our nature longs to be with others. Can any, I mean, can any of us imagine our life alone and not be unhappy? I mean, it just would be miserable. We, it's in our nature to be with others. So as, as much as each thing speaks for itself, among the leaves the small birds sing, the crow of the cock commands awakening. And so everything is wakening up, longing for community. Christ is the one, I mean, to pick up Connie, Christ is the one who makes it clear that this longing for community is to return to the Trinity. You know, to find a way back to God and the indwelling love between the persons. I mean, this, this, I'm getting ahead of myself. This is going to be the end of the Paradiso, Dante's Paradiso. That um, to return to God means to be indwelling one with another. It's, it's, it's um, Laudan's, I mean, Auden's line. Um, that we too may come to the picnic with nothing to hide. Join the dance as it moves in perichoresis, turns about the abiding tree. That all of us be, will be indwelling in a kind of harmony. Um, Susanna and I just finished watching the uh, Fellowship of the Ring again. I mean, we haven't Lord watched, of the Rings. or the Lord of the Rings, and it ends with this. You know, the Fellowship broke, but everybody continued their work, and um, there's this sense at the end that um, there's still work to be done. Sam returns to his community to a marriage to have children. Frodo's going to go off. And if, you, if any of you have seen it, you know that when he boards the ship to go off, he's got a smile in his face because he knows, I, I think the, the, the sense I'm left with in that movie is they're headed towards immortality. It's the cross the ocean to this other life, this immortal life. But everything about Sam or Frodo's smile says it's an adventure. Because I can't imagine going, you know, most people think of heaven as stasis, nothing changes. If you enter into the life of an infinite God with everybody else coming into the kingdom, how can everything not be a continuous carrying forward adventure? It'll never stop. Never. That's eternity. So, in solitude for companies, there's this great longing shared by everything in creation. The birds, the cock, um, bright shines the sun on creatures mortal. The sun is giving its light to everything. Already the mass bell goes down. It's calling everybody to mass. And notice how, it you know, the, the dripping mill wheel, it's turning again, work is beginning. Notice how it ends. 
The dripping mill wheel is again turning among the leaves. The small birds sing. We're right back to the opening word, opening line. Among the leaves, the small birds sing. So there, to pick up Karen's term, there is something cyclical, you know, this return, but there's also this forward move motion that things are being carried forward. Um, so it's a, it's a celebration. It's an expression of hope. It's a celebration of the goodness of creation that no matter what, no matter what's going on in the city, there is this goodness everywhere in nature that will not stop. Sorry, Doc. And of the common thing, the everyday thing. Can you hear Doc? Mm -hmm. Can you say it louder, Doc? And a celebration of the common thing, the everyday, the mill wheel turning, the small birds singing, um, the sun shining. Um, Our ordinary everyday existence yeah. as a good, this great good that should be celebrated. It's a good way to end a poem. Good way to go into Thanksgiving. Any questions or comments? Where did she go? Where did <coughs> Maria? Maria, where did you go? Sorry. I think I'm interrupting dinner. We're eating, interrupting dinner again. Any, we're gonna, um, we're gonna put Auden's poem to rest. My God, we've been on this for weeks. Yeah, a good time. So you guys, you guys were brave to do this. Um, this is a hard, hard poem to do. So good for you all. Okay. Any, any last comments on thoughts about this poem? Another word, persistent. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Boy, that's an understatement, Dave. Pers yeah. Dogged, persistent, faithful. Patient. Patient, yeah. Where's the... Did I get... Um, hold on, you guys. What did I do with this? Sorry, hold on for one second. If you, um. here. There's nothing there. Sorry, I've lost a. It's there somewhere. It's there. Um, oh goodness, give me, sorry you guys, give me a minute, wow, where's, um, my goodness, In here I'm printing the die. Um, let's start Dante. Um, it's got, I don't know why it's, I don't know why it's not working, but um, 
Are you printing it again? It's supposed to be printing right now, but it doesn't look like it's working. Um, Sorry. Um, it's not here. Sorry, you guys have lost my. Um, Is this it? No, it's got that in it. I'm. Um, You guys got the notes that I sent you by the email, right? Or, or did I did I lose you guys? Yes, no. we have. Okay, okay, good. Um, it should be printing. Like I have no idea what's why it's not coming. Um, um, I want to do a, a just a quick review of Boethius. Um, just a, um, it's actually a wonderful um, transition into the Divine Comedy. You remember that at the end of Consolation that Boethius was making the argument that we, we could not um, deal with the question of, of predestination and free will um, without looking at the way we know and the way God knows because humans understand things differently from God and we know that most moderns, I mean, if, if those of you have been, well, yeah, actually, we've been doing a C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man at St. Francis, and it's been really good because it picks up with Boethius. Um, Lewis is making the argument that, it, that um, the, the applied sciences have made it impossible to make that judgments of value, except based on science. So a whole old way of looking at reality has been lost we can't make judgments of value based on science. It's impossible. So obey your parents. Um, one of the arguments that C.S. Lewis makes is you can't get from an indicative mood, this is so, this is a fact, to an imperative, do this, empty the garbage, obey your parents. You cannot do that. You can't get to a command in the imperative, do this, from an indicative mood. It's impossible. It won't happen ever. So you have to start with something in the imperative mode. You have to start um, with the notion that, that obeying your parents is good in itself. It's self-evident. If you're looking for a reason behind that, you won't find. Science can't get us there. It never will. Never will be able to, to do that. Boethius is giving a philosophic argument to justify the existence of God and his goodness and he's done everything he can to make it clear that God, there is no bad fortune. God is doing everything he can to bring good out of evil. Punishments and reward are based on that. And when people are good and they virtuous and they love the way they've been called to, um, they will be rewarded. When they refuse and do whatever they're going to do, they, they will be punished. What Dante is going to show us is that nobody is put in hell. No, but God does not put anybody in hell. They go there because of the choices they make because they refuse to see that there's something more. We'll discover that as we go through the inferno. But you remember that Lady Philosophy comes to the point where she says, 
we can't answer these questions about human free will and, and um, predestination without understanding the way we know and the way God knows. And it's at that point that she describes how humans know. You remember, she said, we know through our senses, our imagination, our reason, powers of ratio, to reason out step by step, and the highest understanding. It means seeing holes, the ability to see the holes. People who are stuck in ratio just see parts. They'll just keep putting parts together, but they'll never get to holes. And she made the point that senses can't see what the imagination does. The imagination can't see what ratio, reason, does. And reason or ratio can't see what understanding does. But understanding can see ratio, the imagination, and senses. Now, I don't want to go on if anybody's got a question. Is everybody okay from the work we've done there? She goes on to say, to try to understand the way God knows is like trying to understand it's like presuming to be the senses and claiming like the senses to know what understanding does when the senses cannot do that. Right? The senses can't see ratio or understanding. It's too high for them. So for us to claim to know the way God knows is to claim something we can't know except sort of abstractly. And then she, she makes the distinction between perpetuity and eternity which was essential to her argument because she said, we're in perpetuity from one moment to the next to the next to the... So using ratio reason to go step by step by step by step is natural for us. Understanding comes harder, but it's important to see that there's a difference between knowing in perpetuity and knowing in eternity. Because in, in perpetuity, what just exists came into existence from something in the future that had not existed. So in 30 seconds from now, I'm going to say words. I don't even know what they are yet, but they're on their way here. And the words that I've just spoken are already fading in the past, right? The most important moment for us is always is here, here and now. That's where we're most fully alive. What's in the past is in the past. We're still here. We have memories, we hold on to the past, we hope for the future, but the most important moment for us is now, here and now. It's that here and now that is our closest link to the here and now of eternity. Because for God, there is no past, there is no future, there's only an eternal now. So the way he sees things is always present. So something not yet he will see as a present, or sorry, something not yet for us, right? Something in the past for us, he still sees, because his mode of knowing is different, okay? Now, the way I tried to make that clear is by asking everybody to distinguish between, because remember, what Boethius says is, it's not only important to know what a thing is, it's also important to know the mode of the knower, how we know, the mode of knowing, because the mode of knowing will change how you know something. Okay? This is all very basic, but if you're not used to it, it'll, it I'm sure it's not easy to grasp. But the way I wanted to bring it home is, is I asked you, picture a tree, and in front of the tree is a dog and a human and an angel. How does a dog know the tree? How does a man know the tree? 
How does an angel know the tree? Will they know the tree in the same way? Obviously not, because the mode of knowing is different for each. A dog knows that tree differently, a human knows it differently, an angel knows it differently. So let me take a minute, because I don't want to assume anything. Any, any, or anybody want to jump in? How, what's the difference between the way a dog knows that tree, or a human, or a angel? Dave, do you, or Kay, do you have a question? Yes. Uh, does it mean, okay, that God, God sees as an eternal present? Does it mean... God sees the future as a present. Yes. I see. Yeah, good. Okay, now, I, I'm so glad you said that. So here, go back, because the way Lady Philosophy prepared for this argument was to say, remember, there's two kinds of necessities, because she's thinking about predestination. Suzanne, a moment ago, was sitting in the chair next to me. I don't know where she is right now, but she was sitting there. So the fact that she was sitting there means it's necessary that she was sitting there. She wasn't someplace else. You know, she was there. That was necessary. She wasn't someplace else. There's also um, Maria. I'm glad you're back because I'm going to direct some of these questions to you. Where'd you? I've been looking for you because these questions are up your alley. So it's ne <laughs> it's necessary that Suzanne be there. It's also necessary that the truth that I speak about her is, is necessary. That, that it, the truth is she's sitting there. So that my words are faithful to that fact. But here's the point. Does my seeing Suzanne sit in that chair necessitate it? Does it determine it? The fact that Connie's looking at the the computer right now, does her looking cause the computer to be there on? Is everybody clear? My, Suzanne, it's, Suzanne's sitting there. It's, that is, so it's necessary that she's sitting there. It's also necessary that my words be faithful to that. She's sitting there. Those words are necessary. They're accurate. Yeah? Does the fact that I see her necessitate her being there, determine that she be there? No. So, K, to go to your question. So, God sees only an eternal present. So, something not yet, he will see as a present. But does that mean he necessitates it or determines it? No. But it also means if he's a God of love and knowledge, that he can do what he can to help us. Right? He can also not. There are lots of people who go to hell. We know that. Some, some people are stubborn. They just will not. They will not turn. That's what we're going to encounter in Dante's hell. Um, um, did, God, did God force them to be there? No, no. God put nobody in hell. That's what we're going to learn from Dante. Hell is a, is a, is a condition that people choose because their minds and hearts are not where they should be. So let me stop. That's, that was the end of the consolation. That he was showing the way it was important to see that God knows differently from the way we do. We will never know the God way. The way wait, go back to the angel human dog. Does anybody want, how does the dog see the tree? 
I want to get clear in this. How does the dog see the tree? Who said that? I did. Kay? Yes. Can you flesh that out? Explain it a little bit, please. Uh, dog sees it at the sensual level. He rubs against the tree and he recognizes the tree. He sees it and recognizes it as a tree. The human being, what's the difference? What does a human see? Wait, so the, the dog is limited by his senses, by his body. He can touch the tree, he can smell it, he can pee on it. He may even have a primitive memory of it, an imagination. But he has no mind, no intellect. A human being has a body, just like the dog. He's an animal. Human beings are animals. We have bodies. So we experience things through our senses. What's the difference between the way a man sees that tree and the dog? We can see it like, uh, uh, botanically speaking, what species that uh, tree belongs to and uh, what benefit it gives to the nature, surrounding atmosphere, uh, uh, it, like taking the uh, uh, carbon dioxide and uh, excrete uh, oxygen, which helps human at that uh, level. Yep. Maria, can you add anything to that? No? I don't believe you. The, the and, and also, tree as a, like a communal part of the universe. Yep. Part of God's cre creation. Yep. 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 Yes to all that Kay just said. If I can just cut to the center of it, a human being can know the form of a tree, its essence, its treeness. So that if you put 20 eucalyptus trees in front of a human and 20 oaks and 20 poplars, right? The human being could recognize the difference between an oak and a poplar conceptually and a eucalyptus. He can grasp the form, the idea, the essence of a tree. It's nature. An animal can't because he doesn't have, he doesn't have conceptual powers. So he can't conceive of an idea. An idea is an abstraction. It's, an, it's a species of a definition. A tree is this. Or rather, a eucalyptus tree is this. Or no, a tree is a treeness, bedness, justness, color, you know, any essence. But to follow up with K's, because I thought it was wonderful, a human being can not only grasp the essence of, a, say, a eucalyptus or a tree and see the difference between a tree and a, um, a rose, <coughs> both plants, see the difference between a, a flower and a tree. He can also see the relationship between that tree in its essence and um, its relation to all those other things. The sun, the soil, other trees. You know, I, I mean, K sounds far more scholarly than I am about this. You know, the, what gives off carbon monoxide or what it receives from the soil or earth or the sun. And so it can see the interrelationship between all those things, like, like Auden's poem, Solitude for Company, that there's a larger whole. 
an angel does not have, is everybody following? Okay. An angel does not have a body. An angel's pure intellect, he does not have a body. So how would an angel experience, so if, if the dog is limited to his senses purely, and a human can grasp the form of a thing, its essence, its nature, and he can see the relationship between that and the nature of all other things, because he has a body and a mind, what does an angel see? Because an angel does not have a body. Okay, Maria. <laughs> what does an angel... Only the essence. But Okay, you got to flesh that out. Wait, because what, what does that mean for an angel? So does that mean the angel sees less than a human being? No, he sees more like the nature of it. Well, we just said that's what a human being saw, the nature of something. Well, the essence. More like the interior, like, without, without the physical properties. Anybody want to add? This is, we had an interesting discussion last night because we were ironically we're finishing up Boethius and we're we've been reading C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man and both men are trying to use reason to answer problems of their time pretty serious problems we got a serious problem in the modern world and Boethius did then and both of them are using reason to show the goodness of creation when at a time when it's being lost um, so Boethius is trying to distinguish between the mode by which a human being knows and God. And I'm trying to just clarify this by sneaking in something out as an angel. You know. Anybody have any thoughts? Anne, you've got any thoughts about this? How an angel knows, what an angel knows? Clearly he's, I mean, I think Maria's right. He knows the essence, the nature, because that's what a human, but... Is a human, does, does that mean an angel's more limited than a human in what he apprehends when he sees the tree? Wait, here, let me, no, so, I, wait, 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 let's, sorry, to, to follow up, so, to go back to, I think it was Kay, if a human can see the essence of the tree, but a human sees it in relationship to the sun, the soil, you know, a community of things, he can grasp that with his mind, and an angel has an intellect, but he does not have a body. Does that mean what the angel knows is more limited than what a human knows? Sorry, go ahead, Anne. Sorry. No, I think it, that an angel would have a broader understanding, uh, would be able to see the, the big picture better rather than... We're, we're almost like mathematical steps, this and then this, 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 so, da, 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 da. The angel would see it more globally, I think. Yeah, and all at once, mm -hmm. a whole. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I, you know, we're going into uncharted. I mean, the, the medieval scholastic, people think the mid, Middle Ages was a time of a period of dumb, it's just not so. The Middle Ages were people then who were well-educated or so many ways better educated than we are today, but um, because they would deal with questions like this. I would say, just to add to what you guys are saying, an angel, except for the fallen angels who turn from God, 
All of the angels have their minds on God. Remember, there's no body. They have their minds because they're, all, they're pure intellect. That's what they are. They have no bodies. They're pure intellect. They've got their minds on God at the same time that they're apprehending whatever it is they're apprehending. So it seems to me that, that they would apprehend things along the lines of what Anne is saying and what Maria is saying. It's hard for me to believe that if you, you know, if you look at a, a beautiful oak tree, let's say, for, or no, let's say a, um, a maple or a, a maple tree with all the flowers. If you were to look at a maple tree in, in color with all the green and all the flowers, a dog, a dog would see the senses. He wouldn't be able to make any sense of but he'd see them. A human being would see the tree and understand its essence. But he would also be able to take a pleasure in the beauty of it. The color, the form, how it's different from a eucalyptus or right. It seems to me that if an angel grasps the form of a tree, he won't grasp it through its concrete particular properties. I mean the way Marie was saying. But somehow he could not miss the beauty of those properties in the form. So that at the same time that he, I'm, and by the way, this is all speculative because you know, we don't know. And so we're, we're, we're certainly, I'm casting in the dark here. It seems to me, I, I, it's hard for me to believe that an angel would not see more. He would see the radiance, the color, the beauty, but not through its physical properties. He'd see that tree in its treeness with all the beauty that's present in its colors, its forms, its variety, but he'd also see it in light of a larger whole, um, because he's, as a pure intelligence, his mind is on God in whatever he's doing here. So if an angel is, you know, if we've all got guardian angels or people are looking out for us, angels have God present to them while they're dealing with whatever they're dealing with here. But they are not going to know things the way we do. Um, and, and it's difficult for me to believe that that's a limiting thing for them that, because they don't have bodies. As a matter of fact, I, I would think they would know more. I don't know that. I'm, I'm offering you know, thoughts because we're dealing with a, a really difficult subject. The point I want to underscore here, Boethius is trying to make it clear we cannot ever understand what we pretend to understand because moderns think they're so intelligent, but they don't question how they know. And in a sense, it's like the people in the cave. They keep thinking they understand things when they don't. If we don't question these things, if we don't ask ourselves how we understand, we may not have our understanding right, even if we claim to. So Boethius is asking us to question these things, to look at them. Because remember, she's trying to help, or Lady Philosophy is trying to help Boethius recover, to be cured. To recover his sense of beginnings and ends. Where he came from, where he's going, how he got there. The difference between the way he knows and the way God knows. Whether he has free will and whether rewards and punishments are, are given by desert. If you take, because Boethius makes this point, if, if, you, if you treat human beings as things to be cured, 
We look at them as objects. That's the way the modern scientific mind looks at human beings. If man has no free will, and that's what, by and large, most scientists claim, man has no free will, he's determined, then there is no reward or punishment. Why would God reward or punish a creature when he couldn't do differently from what he does? He's determined. He has no free will. It would be a, it would be a bad God who would do that. So the giving of desserts, rewards and punishments, only has meaning for a creature who has free will. Hmm? Relate this to Dante. Yeah, I will. So all of this is just a quick summary to tie together Boethius as we prepare to go to Dante because Boethius is, in, in a way, it's doing, I mean, it's amazing how much of what Boethius is doing Dante is going to do in a different way. But let me stop right there. Any, any last questions about Boethius before we finally put him away? Maria, you yes. got. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Who? Yes. Uh, is angels' mode of knowing same as God, which is eternal present? No. No. Why not? I mean, that's K. Why? I mean, you. I think you are. Why can it not be the way God does? God is the only one that is. Uh, ever knowing eternal presence right. level, uncreated, an a an angel's created. Uh, he, he's created contingent. He's what, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. An angel's created, so he's finite. Michael is different from Gabriel. From you know, angels are distinct. They're all creatures. They're contingent. They depend on a god. God's uncreated. He always is. He always was. He always will be. He's infinite. Um, all-knowing, all-powerful. An angel's not. Angel, so, when, when Satan turned against God, he, he turned away from the very source of his life. He was too proud. He, he didn't want to admit that there was a God. So instead of learning how to serve, he refused to serve and turned away. So angels cannot see the way God does, although... I, I'm, I mean, I'm not a theologian here, case, so I'm struggling. But, but in, but in some sense, well, so humans are made in God's image. So there's something in us that can see the way God does. We see. We're, there's a freedom that we have from Him. Angels are the same. Angels don't have bodies, so they can see, but they're not uncreated. They don't have the fullness or or infinite being. You know, in their seeing the way that God would. That's a tough question. What is it the scripture says that angels, uh, I don't want to use the word envy, but are unable to do that man can do? I'm not sure. I mean, they don't have bodies, so in one sense that would limit them. I. One of the, because I mean, one of the. I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to figure out if that has anything to do with the question that you're mulling around trying to find an answer to. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure, Dave. What I, the, the only association that I'm aware of, and I'm not sure that it comes from Scripture, it may come from Milton, is that um, 
the, the reason for Satan's fall is that he envied um, man, that God had created something other than angels. But I'm, I'm not sure that that's just not Milton. I, I, I myself can't recall something in Scripture. Um, I, that, I don't, but I don't know if it's Milton. Okay. What, 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 what we do know is that God created everything good. Lucifer was the brightest angel, and he refused. He refused. He, in his pride, his sin was pride. I mean, there had to be. In, I, I'm not. His sin was pride, that he didn't want to be a creature. That he wanted to be like God. So instead of serving. Um, accepting his creaturely status, he refused, and and in doing that, he turned from God. Um, I know Milton uses envy, and I don't know how much of that gets introduced into our world through Milton. I'm not sure. Okay. I, if if you come up with something in Scripture next week, let us know. I'd be glad to hear. <laughs> okay. Truly, truly, I mean it. Okay, any, any, did that, did nothing come out? Nope. God, what's going on? No, it's, 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 put the light on, Doc. The, this, what is, whatever, no, I mean, there's a window that, oh, here. Is there anything to do there? Um, okay, let's start, Dante. One of, the, one of the most obvious links between Boethius and Dante's this. Um, and it's not obvious, but it's there. You know that Boethius is going to go to his execution unjustly. He's being accused of something that he didn't do. And he's um, feeling sorry for himself. He's angry. He's blaming other people. And Lady Philosophy comes to him and says, stop your whining, stop, you're the problem. You know, stop blaming other people. Um, this shouldn't be a surprise. Because he knew, he, he, he loved philosophy. So you remember that um, she sets out to cure him, to try to help him, because she knows that the problem with him is not the world, because the world has always been bad. It's him. He's got to recover some sense of who he was. So she said, you've got to remember your beginnings and your ends, where you came from, where you're going. And so the whole action of the consolation is a cure. She's trying to help him recover his health. But he can't do that without recalling what he's lost and the nature of God. At the end of the consolation, we don't return to the cell. We don't go back to Boethius. It's left with... Lady Philosophy making these statements. But what we know is this, and it's really crucial. Right at a moment when Boethius is losing it, he's blaming, feeling sorry for himself, he's got all his reasons, she comes to him at that moment, and, and you know that her approach is to get tougher and tougher and tougher and tougher. She says, I'm going to start out mildly. She begins with a mild treatment. And as she goes along, she gets tougher and tougher and deals with harder and harder questions. The point I want to make here now is this. Why does she come then? Nobody asked this question. Why does she come then? Boethius, not once, not once in this work, mentions the word faith. 
This is not about faith. Boethius is making an argument purely on rational grounds. So does C.S. Lewis in Abolition of Man. Both of them are trying to show the sources of rationality at the heart of Christianity. It's a very different reason from the reason of the applied sciences. Because there's some things about the applied sciences that are not good. They're actually anti-human, really in some ways, to deny man's free will. Both men are showing um, the goodness of reason, that reason can achieve certain ends. But it has to answer some things to do that. So, um, the interesting thing, I'm going to put it this way, it's almost like a moment of grace, except at the level of reason. If we look at what's going on, we have to say that there is in reason a power for checking itself if somebody's open. Right? Boethius hears her, he responds, there's an exchange going on. So he's learning again. What we're seeing from Boethius is that reason is this extraordinary power where there's this willingness to hear philosophy. In this case, it's lady philosophy. So reason helps him. It's not faith. It's reason. There is this goodness to our rational powers that can help us recover our health. Is it Christ? No, it isn't. But the point I want to make here is right at a moment when things are not going well for him, a gift is given in rational powers. I mean, imagine the, imagine the dialogue if Boethius had started arguing with her. There would have been no action. He certainly wouldn't have come to where he is at the end. In the Divine Comedy, Dante's on his way to hell. We will learn later that the Divine Comedy begins. We won't learn it for a while. Dante's damned. He doesn't know it, but he's damned. The Divine Comedy begins with Dante wanting to climb this mountain. There's an allegorical aspect to this whole story. There's an underlying meaning. That's what allegory means, an underlying meaning. He starts to climb this mountain, but he does it by himself. He's too proud. He's too self-sufficient. He doesn't, he's not going to listen to anybody. He's not hearing. He's doing it by himself. He tries to climb this mountain on his own, and he gets beaten back by these three beasts. And then suddenly, when he's beaten back, when he's, this is the solitude of our poem, he's alone, suddenly somebody appears. And that person is Virgil. And Virgil comes to him, and Virgil says, you must follow me. And it's because of Dante's willingness to follow him that they go down. Now, it's really important to know this. They don't start by going up. They're not, this is a Protestant. They're not, they're not saved. Dante does not go there. Um, what we learn is that Dante cannot do this by himself. He cannot be alone. He cannot do it. He can only do it with help. And when they start out, they don't go up. They go down. The three beasts that Dante meets, the leopard, the lion, and the she-wolf. Remember those, the leopard, the lion, and the she-wolf. He's going to meet those three beasts in the inferno. The three sections of the inferno represent those three beasts. He cannot go up the map, that mountain until he learns to face those three beasts. Virgil's going to take him down. 
so he can learn to look at his sin. Another way of putting this, I mean, Christ's first call was repent. When we go to Mass, I mean, those of you who go to Mass, you know that it begins with an act of contrition. We begin every Mass by saying, I'm sorry, my fault. We begin every Mass with an act of repentance, saying, my fault. Because it's only, it's only by doing that that we can receive. If you, if you say, I don't need any help, then <laughs> you have no business being there. I mean, God's there. I mean, he even said Christ was there for sinners. He came for all of us. So um, what Virgil's showing is that Dante cannot climb that mountain until he goes down and learns to see himself with all of his sins. If he doesn't admit them, he, why would he repent? He doesn't need any repenting. He can only begin to be cured when he acknowledges that something wrong with him. Now let me, if I, if I, I hope I can just for, if I can do this for a second, I'm not sure. Yep. I'm sorry. Nope, that's not it. Sorry, you guys. I'm not used to. Nope, I clicked out of it. You guys all have that um, that diagram I gave you with the inverted mountains, don't you? Oh, here. Can you all see this? Do you guys have this on your screen? Can you you all good? You all see that? I got you. All, yeah. okay, okay, good. Thanks. So if you look at if you look at these screens, you'll see the actually the three canticles, the Inferno, the Purgatorio, and the Paradiso. So at the far left, you've got a mountain, and Dante wants to ascend that mountain, except he's beaten back by the three beasts. So he has to go down. So if you take that mountain and invert it, you've got the same mountain. It's just turned upside down. But Dante's got to go down into that mountain to learn to see himself. Is that clear? to you? You've got that, I think, in your notes. So Dante's working with a mountain. That's the central image. Um, he wants to climb this mountain. Allegorically, that's that, the moment that the poem opens is the moment when the soul longs for God and the soul wants to go to God. And he sets out and he learns immediately he cannot do it alone. He can only do it with help. Because he has to learn to see himself as he truly is. So Virgil takes him down into the inferno. And when he gets to the bottom of the inferno, he's going to come out on that mountain, on the shoreline. And that mountain will be reinverted again. And he will begin to ascend that mountain. Same mountain. Except now it's purgatory. Because Dante's learned to see his sins and he can begin repenting for them. That's the whole action of the church. That we, we repent our sins, we pick them up daily, we try to do something to correct them. When he finishes purgatory, at the end of the purgatorial, he will ascend the heavens and he will return to God. And he'll learn all the mysteries of the heavens. The the mysteries beyond this earth as he travels from planet to planet to planet to planet to return to God. So that in a nutshell is Dante's voyage. But it's important to understand the significance of that beginning in the mountain. Does anybody have any questions on that? Is that 
The whole action rests on this longing for God, the need to repent, the learning to see ourselves as we are, because how can we repent if we don't admit our sins, and then look for help to, to transform them, to change ourselves, to purify ourselves, or to be purified with the help of others. So that's basically the action of the... It didn't print still. God, what's... Boy. Is that... Any questions about that? Okay, let's... Um, where are we? Um, I will come back. I really want to get us going, so I'm, I'm not going to give... Um, the time I wanted to spend on a number of things, but I want to I want to deal with just a couple of basic <coughs> principles to the whole divine comedy before I turn to the book. Couple of things to know at the beginning. Um, um, the divine comedy was written against a background of a conflict between church and state. The whole Middle Ages is one long conflict between church and state. I, I don't want to go into the details. I'll, I'll pick it up week by week as we go along. I'll go into it a little bit more each week. Um, but it was a conflict between two powers. Those two powers begin to be a part of our human consciousness early, first, second, third century, easily. Um, Christ makes it clear when he says, given to Caesar what's Caesar, given to God what's God. And he meant that. Um... Caesar is ruler over our bodily nature, the things of this temporal world. We owe obedience to him. We may not like our rulers. <laughs> I've got strong opinions about rulers, you know, always. I think most of us do. But we're asked to give obedience to them, to, to see that God only allows them. I mean, they're there because God allows them. All the early church fathers acknowledge that, all of them, all of them. Um, Paul would not have gone through his difficulties if he had not given obedience to all. He would not have been. He would have run away. He didn't. We owe obedience because if we don't, if we don't learn to do that, we won't humble ourselves. We'll go on in our life being proud, arrogant, thinking we're above people. We don't have to do things. And you know that sometimes the cost of that obedience is a is a cross. There are martyrs. There are people who die for the church, in the political order. So there are two orders the earthly under Caesar and the heavenly under God. The church is the voice of God on earth. So with respect to the soul, with respect to man's salvation, we owe our obedience to God. So there's this tension between these two authorities, right? That was the defend, the that tension that defined the Middle Ages. And I'll go into this more next week, but early on the church became very much involved in political affairs. You know in its very beginnings it was persecuted. Um, the the, the um, pagan emperors hated Christians, but eventually um, Christianity was accepted as a legitimate reason and finally became an established religion of the state, and the two powers became entwined. So very often the Pope spoke for the emperor, and the emperor spoke for the Pope, and um, bad things happened. An incestuous relationship developed, really, because those two powers and the separations weren't acknowledged. Dante's writing at a time when those two powers have separated out, 
and created the conditions for the modern state. I cannot say that strongly enough. Cannot. At Dante's time, there were two warring parties called the Ghibellines and the Guelphs. They're, they're um, Italian um, names for Germanic names because the original war started there in the, in the conflict between the Upper and Pope, which the two leaders vied for power. The Ghibellines um, acknowledged the headship of the emperor. The Guelphs looked to the Pope, so they fought against each other bitterly. They killed each other. So you, you think what's going on between conservatives and liberals today is bad? I mean, cities were killing each other. Honestly, civil wars, cities against cities, factions within cities were killing. There was bloodshed everywhere. Um, eventually, the Guelph party, which identified with the Pope, split off into two parties. So both of them identified with the Pope against the Ghibellines, the emperor. But one was more inclined to the Pope, and one was inclined to its own independence. Now, I want to make this clear. Initially, there were the Ghibellines and the Guelphs. The Ghibellines looked to the emperor for power, the Guelphs to the Pope. The Guelphs divided into two powers, one that looked to the Pope and the other that said, the Pope cannot determine political action. It's not his place. That a polity has to be free from both the emperor and the Pope. So there were two powers, the blacks and the whites. The blacks looked to the Pope, the whites looked to their independence. Dante was among the whites. It's at this time in history that the modern burger republic, commercial republic, comes into existence. That does not, know, that does not let the emperor determine what people are going to do or the pope. It has an autonomy of its own, so that if people choose to honor the emperor, they can. They choose to honor the pope and go to church, they can. But neither power can dictate to human beings what they're to do, politically. So the commercial republic comes into existence almost at the time Dante is born. The divine comedy is, is I'm going to, this may sound outrageous. I'm going to treat the Divine Comedy as prophetic, that it's the first, most thorough critique of the commercial republic that's ever been written. Because it's looking at exactly what's going on in this conflict between church and state. You know that America was founded basically on that principle. It's our First Amendment, the um, freedom from establishment of religion because of all the religious wars that have been fought in Europe. So, in the Divine Comedy, we're getting a look at the, very, the nature of the commercial republic as it is. <clears throat> and all the people, um, um, what motivates them, what's going on, their attachment to the church, to the state, the conflicts. Um, it will be the most important thing dealing with the commercial republic until we get to Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice and Othello. Now, do you guys happen to know anything about either one of those stories? <laughs> you should, because that's where we started. Because we were, my reason for starting there is that I wanted to start in the modern world with our own country, you know, and work backwards. So finally now we're here. 
this is the beginnings of the modern world. He, you can say that Dante, Dante's looking back to an ancient world, but he's in, in some sense the first modern. I'll, I'll make a case for that in a second. So, um, there's a number of things to keep in mind about the Divine Comedy before we start. One is, when you read the poem, you're going to find out that Dante is carrying the whole past forward. That's what the epic poet did. Homer did that in the Iliad the Odyssey. Virgil did it with the Iliad and the Odyssey. You know that because you've done it. So you guys are a step up in the world. You saw, all of you saw and experienced the way Virgil took the Iliad and the Odyssey and carried them forward. They're absolutely integrated into the Aeneid. You know that. Um, who does Dante have as his guide? Virgil. He's taking the past, carrying it forward, keeping it alive. He's not like these modern Puritans who want to tear down statues and get rid of the past. Dante knows the only way we can go forward is by carrying the past with us. We cut ourselves off from the past, we're dead. So Virgil's going to be his guide. So Dante is working within the epic tradition, just the way Homer, Virgil, all the poets he loved, most especially Virgil. Okay? But he's doing something the epic poets didn't do. Homer wrote in Greek. Virgil wrote in Latin. The, the poets writing in the epic after Virgil wrote in Latin. Dante did not write his Commedia in Latin. He wrote it in modern Italian. He chose the vernacular, the spoken language of, not the academic language, the language of the learned. He chose the spoken common language of ordinary men. And, and instead of looking back to an idealized past, the way Homer does Achilles and Odysseus, remember, we've talked about this. In the ancient world, the poet looks back into this idealized past this great epic hero, Achilles or Odysseus. In Virgil's case, it was looking 1200 because Virgil lived 70 BC and he's talking about the Trojan War, which took place in 1200. He's looking back to a hero who lived 1200 years earlier. Dante's not looking back into that past. He's looking to the present moment and himself. The hero of the Divine Comedy is not some idealized hero, it's himself. And if you've started reading, you know, uh, by, before we get to the 6th or 7th canto, Dante passes out. Repeatedly. He faints. He cries. He weeps. Um, I mean, he couldn't be the farther away from the epic hero than, <laughs> than he is. So before we go on, here's my question to you. I mean, just a, it's a, interesting. Why does Dante choose himself? By the way, do you see that the way that looks forward to the novel? Because so often modern novels take some present hero like Huckleberry Finn or, you know, um, um, Pip in Dickens' Great Expectations or, you know, whatever book we're going to choose. Conrad, it doesn't matter. The novel set in the present. The ancient epic was always set in an ancient past. Why does Dante do that? For just literary reasons alone or are there other reasons? Why would he do it? Something happened in history to change the way we look at time. 
Maria, what happened? Why does Dante do this? What happened in history that changed the way we look at time? Christ was crucified. Well, before he was crucified, he had to... Be born. Can you say it louder? Christ was born. God came into history. And he made the present more important than the future or past. This present moment, every present moment is a moment. He said, repent, come to me. The life of the church is, come to me, repent, take up your, pick up your cross. Yeah, I mean, I'm just repeating. That's Christ's call, every one of us. Pick up your cross, repent, stop acting like you're not a sinner, repent, acknowledge. You know, here are the graces of the church, all the graces to help us. The present moment, we're not, we're not to escape the present and our sins by looking to a past or a future that doesn't exist yet. And we're not supposed to escape in a past in what we've done or not done. Or we're supposed to constantly hold ourselves in hope, in faith, in love now. So Dante doesn't go back to an idealized past. His epic, in some sense, is a great affirmation of Christianity. Um, the present moment for every one of us. So Dante is, in a sense, all of us. Every one of us has a story. The pattern of that story should be, if we want to be with Christ, go down and look at our sins, be willing to face them, however awful they are, repent of them, pick them up, and be changed and return to God. So Dante looks back to a past, but he's writing in the vernacular. He's taking himself as a hero. So he's there's two Dantes in this poem, just like there are two Boetheuses. There's Dante the journeyer. He went on this journey, right? Just like Boethius is in jail. He's on this journey, but he finishes it, and he comes back to write the story, to reflect on it. It's important that he reflect on it, just like all of us reflect on our lives, to look at them, even when it's painful to do that. If we don't face the bad things, we don't have a reason for repenting. Um, so he takes himself as the figure, the poet hero, but he changes it. In the ancient world, a poet was, or I mean, a hero is defined by these great deeds. Dante radically transforms the image of the epic hero. The epic hero is not anybody any longer who does these great things. Look how great I am. Look at all my accomplishments, what I've done. It's his learning. The whole of the Divine Comedy is about learning. From Virgil, from the past, from all the people he speaks with, and finally Beatrice, this creature sent from God to help him, who goes to get Virgil. So Dante is radically changing the epic tradition. He's not going back to the past. He's, re he's recreating the epic tradition. He's giving it a new meaning it never had before. And in that sense, he stand <coughs> he's a forerunner of the, of the modern novel. If you look at the structure of the Divine Comedy, it's divided into three canticles, three songs. The whole of the Divine Comedy is a long lyric poem. It's a poem to his beloved, 
Beatrice and to Christ. It's a long lyric. That's, it's narrative and dramatic in fashion. It's divided into three canticles. The Inferno, the Purgatorio, the Paradiso. Each canticle is divided into three. So the Inferno is divided into three sections. The Incontinent, the Violent, the Fraudulent. The Purgatorio will be divided into three sections. The Paradiso will be divided into three sections. You can't go through the, the Divine Comedy and not be aware of the Trinity. The, the poetic line is called the Terza Rima. It goes A-B-A, B-C-B, C-D-C, right? It, it, it has a rhyme scheme that keeps, like um, Oddsbump, it keeps moving forward. So the rhyme scheme is pushing it forward, but it's a three-set stanza. A-B-A, B-C-B, C-D-C, E, you know, it just keeps going forward. When we read it in translation, we don't have that because there aren't as many rhymes in English as there are as Italian. So Dante's poem is going to be far more musical than our poem, but it should be read as a lyric. It's a lyric love song. It's a beautiful piece of poetry. I, I wish I knew Latin. I wish we could do it in Italian. I don't know it, but thanks, Doug. So those are just some of the structural things. Um, the last and one of the most important is that the, um, and it's important to know this for a number of reasons, the whole of Dante's epic journey takes place in Easter week in the year 1300. So it begins on Monday, Thursday, when Dante's in the dark wood and he wants to climb out on Monday, Thursday. Friday, he goes down into hell. Saturday, Sunday morning. On Sunday morning, when Dante comes out of hell, Sunday morning, he arrives in purgatory. On Sunday morning, it's a risen life. He's seen his sins. He knows his sins. Now, he wants to repent them. The whole journey up purgatory is the action of penance, of owning, acknowledging, these are my sins. And now that I see them, I can begin to do penance for them. And on Wednesday noon, he enters um, the heavens and goes through the heavens and returns to God. So the whole action is about a risen life, going down into the darkness, facing sins, entering a life of penance, which is the life, that's the life the church offers. I mean, it's so crucial to see this. What the church offers us on earth is a life of penance, of entering into the life of penance so that we can be renewed through the help of God, particularly by the sacraments and our activities in the church. So the whole journey um, takes place. Now, it's, it's important to know that because constantly through the um, Dante's journey, he's going to encounter souls who will prophesy things to come. How would Dante know them? He's doing exactly what Virgil did. If you go back to Virgil, remember in the beginning of the Aeneid, um, Dante's going to Carthage and um, Venus is upset because Juno's doing everything she can to throw Aeneas off his course. And there's that long prophecy by Jupiter of how 
Roman history will unfold. Well, how could Jupiter have known that? Because it had already happened. Virgil's living first century before Christ. He's going back to 1200. He knows that history. So when he puts those words in the mouth of Jupiter, Jupiter speaks them like there's a prophecy and amazing because all these things are actually going to happen. But they're prophetic because they already have happened. Dante's writing this poem, um, I think about 13 years later. Um, he sets the, the poem in 1300. So all the prophecies have to do with events that had already taken place by the time Dante wrote it. But I don't, I don't want to take away from that. What Dante's, I mean, we can explain it away the way moderns do and say, oh, of course, he knew all this stuff already. What Dante's showing us is there are prophetic things in life. That things will be said to it. He's going to learn things from people in hell. People in hell are going to prophesy things. He's got to learn to hear everybody. If he's going to learn at all, he can't just want to hear the things he wants to hear. He's going to have to deal with a lot of stuff. So there's a prophetic element that's running through the poem. So those are just some of the some of the important things to think about. The, the last one is a kind of overview to, to get us going. Um, when Dante gets beaten back by the three beasts, um, suddenly this shadowy figure approaches him. It's Virgil. And Dante is glad to see him because he loves Virgil. He's his teacher. He calls him master, teacher, father. Those are all his names for Virgil. And Virgil tells him the reason he's there is this. So it's like a moment of grace in exactly the way Lady Philosophy came to Buitrius when he most needed it. Somebody comes to Dante when he most needs it. Dante's in danger of being damned. He doesn't quite know it fully. He will. Virgil comes to help him. How did Virgil come and why? What Virgil tells Dante is that Mary, this is so important, Mary saw Dante in his plight. She went to get Lucia, which means light. Lucia went to get Beatrice. Why? Because she knew that Dante loved Beatrice. Beatrice went to get Virgil. Why? Because she knew that Dante loved Virgil. Now, what is Dante showing just in that opening action? What do we learn just from that? The connection in heaven uh, of love. Maria, good. Can you flesh that out some? Can you? Can you? I'm not sure that that's obvious. Can you explain that a little bit? Because I think uh, we're right on, but. How, how everyone is connected um, in love with each other and thinks of who who that person loves and is connected like with love and so thinking thinking through love kind of like yeah, no, no, thinking who would be the best for in, in terms of love yeah, yeah I don't know how to <laughs> no you're right on no no you did it you just you nailed it you nailed it you did you nailed it. Um, and I, it's important to see, it, I hope everybody sees the mediations. You know, the modern world thinks you have to be struck by God. 
what we're seeing is that God works through those things we love. So let's say a baseball player was in trouble. You know, he was close to being damned, let's say, or, you know, whoever it is. If that guy loved baseball, what would the most, I mean, who would be one of the most important people to come to that guy? You know, it, it would be somebody who loved baseball, who was really good, who could speak to him about, you know, just... Um, God works through mediations. We're in, we're incarnate. We're not angels. We are people who live in their hands. Try to be angelic. We are not angels. We're we're corporeal creatures. God works through the the physical incarnate the carnated world. Who is the poet Dante most loved? Virgil. Who is the person Dante more than his wife in some ways? Beatrice. So what we're watching in the beginning is this whole action. It's like a. Um, it's a, it's, a, it's a divine order put into motion through loves to help somebody recover himself at a time of real need. So it's showing us, it's sort of in its way illustrating what, what Boethius showed us, that there is this goodness at work in the world through mediations, through our loves, those things we love. Sometimes we love the wrong things. I mean, let's say we love drink too much, you know, or, I mean, whatever it is. That, I mean, we have to learn to turn from some of those things to, you know, remember Boethius saying, stop crying, stop your, stop. you're reading too much literature, it's, it's, it's time for you to, you know, recover some philosophy or so. But the whole point, I mean, Maria nailed it. it it's that God works through those things that's love. I think one, the two most important things to see here is that Mary initiates it. Our mother, the beginning of the church, she goes to Lucia. So there's a hierarchy, an order of mediations. She goes to Beatrice, Beatrice goes to Virgil. So a whole divine action is set in motion by love to help Dante. So we're seeing a paradigm for our human life that God works through others. Um, to help us recover ourselves. So let me stop. I want to get to the I want to get to the book, but those are some of the the um, one sorry, one last thing before and that because I want to turn to the book. When you go through hell, when you go up purgatory, you're gonna encounter this thing. The word to describe it is called contrapasso. 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 When we go through each level of hell. Each level is going to have its own action. It's, it's, own, it's going to be like a drama. Romeo and Juliet, Merchant of Venice. It's a drama. Each level has its own setting, its own scene, its own peculiar action to itself because each sin is different. If we don't learn to recognize sins, how can we do penance for them? Yeah? So the contrapasso is an externalization an external representation of an inner action. So, for example, when we get into the first level with the virtuous pagans, the whole scene will show what's wrong. When we get to the next level, to the level of lust, everything that's going on there, all the externals, every, everything that's moving, will show the nature of lust and its effects. So it's important to recognize the contrapasso, the the action of the setting, and 
to connect it with the words of the people there because the two are going to perfectly um, correspond. We know sins by the words that people, people speak. We know them by their actions, by their effects. So Dante is helping us to, to learn to see ourselves and the effects of what we do better so that we can do something about it. And I know that's a lot, but all of that's preparatory to those are things we have to carry with us as we move along. And from this point on, we will concentrate on the story. But let me stop there. Any, that's a lot, a, a lot of background. But any, any questions about any of that? That's all the nature of what we're about to enter um, this world. It's our church. It's our church. Any Sorry, Stephanie's not here, and I'm sorry a number of other people aren't here because I know they'd. Um, Maria, you go ahead. Yes. Something that it made me think about that that introduction of of intercession is um, for evangelization, like the importance of like just not talk about God, but like finding what the person loves and Boy. what is that person interest to attract. Yeah, right on. You know, the popes in the last 20 years have emphasized that. There must be something going right with you. <laughs> no, the popes, you know, truly, Maria, you're just, the popes have been concerned. They've been saying to Catholics, get out of your church and talk. Get out of, the out of your pews and engage in a dialogue. And there's no way to do that without doing exactly what you're saying. If you don't listen to people, because sometimes people get in their own worlds and just isolate themselves... If you don't listen to people, if you're not willing to hear other things, how can you learn? And moreover, to your point, how can you grow? Or if you're evangelizing, I mean, how can you I, you're reach someone. Huh? How can you reach someone? Say it, Doug. I mean, you're so right, Maria. How can you reach someone? Can you all hear Suzanne? Can you speak up to? How can you reach someone if you don't listen to what it is that they love? so that you can connect with them there, not in some extra abstract idea that you have about theology. Yep. Anybody else? Okay, quickly, in the, in the three minutes we have left, can you turn to the beginning of the poem? This is the beginning. By the way, you know this is going to take a long time because we've got three canticles. We've got the Inferno, the Purgatorio, the Paradiso. So what I'd like to do is try to hold us to eight cantos a week. That's not a lot. I think you can manage eight. Um, I don't want to do more. I don't want to do less. We, we can just move ahead. Um, I'm not going to hold to that strictly, but if we could just all try to read eight cantos, um, we'll get through it. I don't want to stretch it out too long because if we do, you'll... You won't be able to put it together. By the time we get to the end, you'll have forgotten the beginning. I just don't want that to happen. Here's the beginning. Midway along the journey of our life, I woke to find myself in a dark wood, for I had wandered off from the straight path. It's that moment of being so preoccupied in the world that you're caught up in it, and you don't know the, you don't know the darkness of the world you're in. 
how universal is that? It's true for all of us. We can say that it's true constantly in our lives. How hard it is to tell what it was like, this wood of wilderness, savage and stubborn, the thought of it brings back all my old fears, a bitter place. Death could scarce be bitter, but I would like to show the good that came out of it. Here's Boethius. He's been in a dark world. The whole point of having gone that through that journey and come back is to come back and, and tell that story so that he can show the good of it. Is that clear? It's absolutely cru crucial. He experienced, he was going to be damned. He has to face that. But he wants to come back to bring the good out of it. He can't do that without dealing with the bad. So his purpose is here. A bitter place. Death could scarce be bitter. But I would show the good that came of it. I must talk about things other than the good. He's got to deal with bad things if he's to do justice to this story. So you know that he sets himself, this is so funny, he sets himself on page four. I raised my head and saw the hilltop shawled in morning rays of light sent from the planet that leads man straight ahead on every road. That's the sun. And then only then um, did terror start subsiding in my heart's lake, which rose to heights of fear that night I spent in deeper desperation. Just as a swimmer still with panting breath now safe upon the shore out of the deep might turn for one last look at the dangerous waters. So I, although my mind was turned to flee, turned round to gaze once more upon the past that never let a living soul escape. He's going to try to do something that no man has ever done to try to, you know, go up this mountain he ascends the mountain. The leopard beats him back. And line 33. Um, on 42, the gaudy beast wild in its spotty belt, but then good hope gave, day, gave way and fear returned when a figure of a lion loomed up before me. The lion beats him back. And finally, the she-wolf, the most vicious, the most vicious, the she-wolf came that in her leanness seemed racked with every kind of greediness how many people she has brought to grief. This last beast brought my spirit down so low with fear that seized me at the sight of her, I lost all hope of going up the hill. As a man who rejoicing in his gain suddenly sees his gains turn into loss, will grieve as he compares his then and now. So she made me do that relentless beast coming towards me slowly, step by step, she forced me back to where the sun is. In sunsets, he's learning to see the sins in himself, even, even though he doesn't recognize. Because there's no way man can overcome his sins by himself. There's none. We can't. Or Christ wouldn't have had to come. So he can't do it. The, the effort to get to Christ requires help. You know what happens then. Suddenly, page 5, when I was rushing down to that low place, my eyes made out a figure coming toward me of one grown faint, perhaps from too much silence. How, how many years has passed since Virgil wrote? Somebody give me an answer. Roughly 1300, right? Dante's writing 1300. Virgil wrote 70 BC. He finished somewhere in 19 BC, just before Christ. It's been 1,900 years since an epic has been written of this magnitude. 
How many people hear that voice? How many people want to hear it? Virgil tells him then that um, Beatrice had descended into hell. She was fearless. She had to go into hell. Remember, Mary sent Lucia, Lucia went to get Beatrice. Beatrice went into hell on page 7 to get um, Virgil out so that he could go get Dante and help him recover himself. So here at the outset of the story, a number of things are taking place. A divine action is set in motion for a soul, and the way of approach to that soul is through poetry. Um, that's the beginning of the Divine Comedy. And you know that it's that point that Virgil takes Dante down. He has to begin by going down. He will enter hell, and Dante will learn to see the nature of sin in every one of its you know, horrible aspects. What he's doing is showing the inside of every one of us. What's in me, what's in all of us. Those things we have to face if we're to get better. Any questions before we stop? This is the beginning of a wonderful, wonderful journey. Wonderful, wonderful journey. Connie, no questions? Hell's a frightening place. Um, I just, I, I'm, I'm trying to say that with some seriousness, but because I think looking at our sins is a hard thing to do, but I, one of the points of all of this is that there's this light of reason. You know, Lady Philosophy came to Boethius, Virgil comes to Dante. There's help all around us, and lots of it comes in the form of reason. Do we hear it? The graces that come there? This is Dante's starting point. Virgil comes to help him begin this journey. So, Any thoughts? Something. Maria. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I think someone else wanted to talk. Oh. Anybody? Oh, okay. Uh, something um, that I think I think it's interesting is that the the animals that you mentioned are, that are there, mm -hmm. and how um, that may be like connected with, like how can we become like we we lose that rational like that philosophy and that capacity and like. Like yep. animals don't have it. Yep, yep. And we become less than ourselves. You know? By the way, I just want to uh, give you a warning. Um, there are lots of critics who see the leopard and lion and she-wolf in reverse order. So they will see, when Dante descends, they'll see the first level, the incontinent. So there are three sins, or three orders of sins. The incontinent, the violent, and the fra fraudulent. The worst is the fraudulent. Because at the center of hell, you see people using their intellects the wrong way. The, that, our intellects is our greatest gift. When we go bad, we go bad there. If the, if the intellect gets turned around on itself, who can help? So what Dante is going to face in the fraud are the way in which people use the intellect to cover up their sins. So the three levels are incontinence, violence, fraud. Okay, Lying. The disorders of the intellect. Lots of people see the first level, the incontinence of the she-wolf. 
and the lion as violent, and the leopard as fraud. I, I think that's absolutely mistaken. The order is the order in which Dante faced them. The leopard first, is in, the spots keep changing. She's, she's relatively harmless. The leopard, the lion, and the she-wolf, because the she-wolf is, and it's feminine and cunning, deceptive. Um, the most violent sins, the, the ones hardest to shake, will be those of the she-wolf. So as we go to going to hell, we're going to be looking at those three beasts. And, and Maria's comment a minute ago is apropos because, but I just want to add that, so we, we become bestial, but we can become bestial in a different way. There's a radical difference between the leopard and the she-wolf. Remember Dante's description of the she-wolf here. She's vicious. She mates with things. Um, she, um, she's cunning. Um, so Dante's going to have to learn. <laughs> Dante's going to have to learn to see every, everything about our human nature. That, and remember, the the principle of hell is those who have lost the good of the intellect. That everywhere in hell, people have lost what defines hell is the loss of the intellect. And at its heart are the ways in which people use the intellect in the wrong way. So we're entering a dark, dark world. Um, I think on that happy note, I'm going to sign off. Listen, all of you, all, and it's good to see you. I'm, I, this, I'm so glad to be doing this journey. I, I, honestly, I'm glad... I never take it without feeling some help from you guys. Just the fact that we're doing it together is a great support for me and Suzanne. I hope you know that. I'm saying that honestly. To, um, to be able to do this with people is so important. So all of you have a good Thanksgiving. Um, Let's keep each other in prayers, please. Have a really good Thanksgiving, whatever difficulties are going on. And you all stay safe, and um, we'll see each other in a week. Okay? You guys Thank have you, a good thanks. weekend. Thank you, Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. Bye. Happy Thanksgiving. Bye. Bye. It's nice to hear the rain.